Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the state where Commandant John A. Lejeune, the legendary Marine and namesake of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, was born, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the state where legendary college football coach Paul William Bear Bryant was born. Tonight, we're looking at the case against Adnan Syed, who was convicted and sentenced in 2000 to life in prison plus 30 years for the 1999 robbery, kidnapping, and murder of his former girlfriend, Hei Min Lee, a fellow student in the magnet program of Baltimore County's Woodlong High School in Maryland. Syed's case has been the subject of several podcasts that have raised questions about his conviction. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm very uh, interested in tonight's topic, so I certainly... Look forward to getting into that, you know, especially with what is going on in today's society. You know, you see a lot of stuff going on as far as immigration and things like that. You know, one of the first things I've learned about the victim was that uh, her and I believe her mother and brother immigrated from South Korea to the U.S. in 1992 so they could live with their grandparents. I mean, definitely, definitely, you know, still speaking to what's going on today. And like you said, a lot of uh, Innocence Project and, you know, a lot of the people at the uh, clinic for the Innocence Project actually are out there putting out uh, several other potential suspects other than Syed. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into that later on, but definitely a lot of twists and turns in this thing. And it'll be interesting seeing what happens going forward, excuse me, uh, and, you know, in the future, what happens with Adnan Saeed. And, you know, definitely first and foremost, want to, you know, give our condolences out to the family of uh, Miss Lee. Yes. And, uh, 
Syed's family also immigrated here from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of you know both sides of the of the coin. Uh, her family were immigrants from Korea, and his family were immigrants from Pakistan. So two very um, you know key points in today's uh, political society. Mm-hmm. Correct. And I think also some of the issues in their relationship arose because of Syed's uh, culture and strict Muslim background Uh that led to him kind of leading a double life for a while. And, I mean, I can say this now, I, I think when the relationship ended, he was a little you know, upset because after all this, he had nothing, he had nothing left. And he became resentful of her moving on with her life and leaving him behind. So, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about, uh, and I'm going to have to get you to pronounce this for me, and I may have to get it, get you to do it. Uh, several times, but let's uh, start out with uh, Miss Lee, the victim here. Hey, Min Lee. Um, hey, Min Lee. She okay. was, yeah, Hey, Min Lee uh, was born in South Korea in Seoul, and she and her brother and mother emigrated to the United States. Um, I don't know the exact year. There's a lot of material about the case, and I concentrated on the uh, on the court material uh, rather than the you know background material on her. Right, I believe so it was much. So, but so she would have been about twelve mm-hmm. because I think she was born in 1980. Right, and she was in the magnet program at the Woodlawn High School. Um, she had left for a period of time to move to California with her mother. And then they came back, I believe, right around her junior year of high school. Uh-huh. And her relationship with Syed started around junior year of high school. Okay. And for for her, it was not the first very serious relationship she'd ever had. She had a few prior serious relationships. But for him, it was his first serious relationship because in his culture, you don't date. Your family arranges a marriage for you, and you either marry a girl within your community or you go back to Pakistan and, you know, the family in Pakistan has arranged a marriage for you and you marry that girl. Um, right. So it was, uh, and she was, you know, I mean, Heyman Lee was not Muslim. She was Korean, Asian. So, I mean, there were a lot of, uh, they were from two very, very different worlds. Two, a lot of As far as. Correct, correct. 
And apparently his parents were not happy about the relationship. Um, There was a homecoming dance where they were attending the homecoming dance, and his parents actually showed up, dragged him out of the dance, and then he apparently got on his bike and rode back to the dance. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think he had some some issues of being torn, trying to please his parents, trying to please his com- community, but also trying to, you know, please himself and have the life that he wanted. Right, absolutely. And absolutely. I think in the end, it was just more pressure than he could stand. And you think he just snapped? I think he grew to resent her ability, Hay's ability to, you know, go on with her life. She was involved in a new relationship. Uh, it was common not it had become common knowledge around school and so he was now the ex-boyfriend rather than the boyfriend mm-hmm. and you know like I said and, and I mean in in most Muslim cultures whether they're Middle Eastern or Asian from you know Pakistan India which are all Asian countries are both Asian, Asian countries. Um, you know, the attitude toward women is very restrictive. The man right. is the final, the final say in everything. Men make the decisions. The wives perhaps contribute to a degree, but if the man doesn't agree, he does what he wants. And, I mean, and you know, in... In Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, uh, divorce, I mean, you know, the wife, if the husband wants the kids, he gets the kids. And he gets all the property. Uh And, you know, the wife, and I think a lot of times the wives are not only rejected by the husband, they're rejected by their own family. Right. So, really, um, as terrible for a woman to, you know, try to have any rights. And not mm-hmm. only really in the Middle Eastern cultures, but honestly in the, uh, to a lesser extent, yes, but in the Asian cultures as well, you know, a lot of Asian cultures require women to be subservient to men as well. They do to a degree. I think it's more with with Japan, China, Korea, uh, Vietnam, it's more in public for the appearance of the man being the king of the castle. But, I mean, in Japan, a lot of the women run the household and control the purse. Mm-hmm. But to the, to the public, to the neighbors, to the friends, yes, the husband is the king. But behind the scenes, the wife has a lot more power uh, than you would expect in that kind of culture. Another interesting thing with with Hay is Mm -hmm. in Korea and Vietnam, and I believe to a degree in China, when a woman gets married, she then becomes part of her husband's family 
and has very little contact, if any, with her own family. Uh-huh. And so for Hay, with, with Syed's family's disapproval of their relationship, from her standpoint, it was never going to work because she would never have been accepted into his family. Right. And so for her, that would have been, you know, a problem because if she's not accepted by his family, you know, how is a marriage going to work? Were it to go that far? And that's something because I I had a couple of coworkers who uh, really kind of upset their family when they got married, but they and their husband, the women and their husbands went and lived on their own because they were very Americanized. And their traditional Vietnamese family expected them to go live with the husband's family. Right. And, I mean, in a traditional, you know, in a a more traditional uh, Vietnamese especially, You know, the woman, it doesn't matter if she's 30, 40, 50. If she never got married, she still lives with the parents Uh until she's married. And then she's, you know, she's part of the husband's family after that. I don't think they're quite as rigid on the no contact anymore because my sister, one of her sisters-in-law is Vietnamese, and she still has a great relationship with her own family. And, you know, they, but back in the 80s, like I said, I had a coworker whose family didn't want to talk to her anymore because she and her husband went to live on their own in their own apartment rather than living with his family. Right, and absolutely. in their mind, there was just something major wrong with that. So, um so they were two, the two different cultures, different ideals, uh, different, you know, different moral systems, I think, as well. Right, right. And let's talk about a little bit of background on uh, Mr. Syed. Uh, what, uh, what happened to him before this heinous crime? Well, I mean, he was, you know, he was, a, he was in the magnet program. He and Hay were both athletes as well as uh, scholars. Uh, He had a bright future. He was working as an EMT with a local ambulance or fire department. Um, And, you know, like I said, they had bright futures. They both had, you know, they were getting ready to start college applications, getting acceptances to college. Uh, because I believe they were seniors and would have been graduating in the late spring, early summer. Um, so, but like I said, the relationship with Hay between 1998 and, or in 1998, it ended around November of 1998. It involved him leading a double life. He kind of snuck around to see Hay and to do things with Hay and and couldn't let his family know what he was doing. So he probably had to lie to them and say he was in one place when he was going to be with Hay. Um, And then the relationship ended and 
there's a letter from Hay to Syed that kind of suggests that he was not accepting the breakup because they would break up and get back together and then break up and get back together again. And finally, their last breakup, she was, you know, absolutely never going to get back together with him as much as they loved each other. It just wasn't going to work. Right. And she could see that and I think wondered why he couldn't see that. Absolutely. So this all leads us to January 13th in 1999 when uh, Heyman Lee goes dis, uh, disappears. You know, her family reported her missing when she was failed and when she failed to pick up her younger cousin from daycare at 315. Uh, a lot of people actually saw her leave campus uh, that day at the end of school. So it's all of a sudden became what happened between the end of the school day and, you know, the time when she was, when she was uh, declared missing. And there was a lot of, you know, questions to be answered as far as that goes on that day. Correct. And uh, a little bit of background, two days prior to uh, January 13th, Syed got a cell phone. And on January 12th, or early on after midnight on January 13th, called Hay and gave her the new number, which she was writing in her diary, and she wrote it in her diary as a new phone number for Adnan. But she didn't put Adnan's name. And the number was written on a page that had her new boyfriend's name on it. Uh, which really? is interesting. Yeah. And then also on the evening of January 12th, Adnan Syed contacted a friend of his from high school by the name of Jay Wilde, uh-huh. who was also a senior at Woodlawn, although not in the magnet program. And they made plans to get together the following day. Uh, sometime late in the morning, they got together and Syed and Wilds went in, in Syed's car to a local mall where they shopped for a present, a present for, Syed, uh, for Wilds' girlfriend's birthday. Uh-huh. When it came time for Syed to go back to school because the lunch break was ending, uh, he let Wilds keep his car and his cell phone. And he told Wilds that he would call when he was ready to be picked up. So Wilds has uh-huh. a car, Wilds has a cell phone. He drops Syed off at school. Um, witnesses saw Syed and talking to Hay after class let out at 2.15. And he had told other people, other witnesses, that Hay was going to give him a ride to pick up his car, which was in the shop. Which isn't uh-huh. true, because his car was with Jay Wilds, along with his new cell phone. Right. And so there's some, you know, there's a lot of controversy because nobody saw him actually getting in the car with Hay. 
that if he's going to uh-huh. leave his car with someone else and tell people it's in the shop, and he's going to leave his cell phone with someone else, I think he's probably smart enough to figure out a way to get into Hayes' car without anybody seeing him do it. Right. Well, this so is... Go ahead. I don't think that's too significant. And a lot of the timeline put together by the prosecution is based on phones to and from Syed's cell phone corroborating statements made by other people about calls that they placed or received from Syed on that cell phone. Uh-huh. So uh, basically it's kind of, it, it's entirely circumstantial, but I think uh-huh. it's some pretty strong circumstances even with the timeline because if he leaves his car and cell phone with Wilds, and then he calls Wilds and says, okay, come pick me up at this place, which was a, a Best Buy parking lot, and when Wilds get there, gets there, he opens the trunk and shows Wilds Hayes' body, they know from the cell phone record that the call, uh, Syed, was received at 2.36 p.m. Uh-huh. I mean, they know to the minute of when most of these calls were placed or when they were received. Uh-huh. And when you put it all together, it, it, it's some pretty strong circumstances. Um, and so here we have Jay Wilds bringing Syed's car to the Best Buy, and Syed has Heyman Lee's car, and Heyman Lee, Lee's body is in the trunk. Right. Then the two of them, Mm -hmm. then the two of them leave Best Buy and they go leave Hayes' car at a parking ride off of Interstate 70. Mm -hmm. And from the time Jay Walsh picked Syed up at Best Buy, or met him at Best Buy, until sometime later in the evening, they're together. Right. Syed's not with anybody else. Um, Well, with one exception, after the Best Buy, after they dump Heyman Lee's car, Syed says, I have to be seen, and has uh, Wilds take him back to the school so he can go in track practice mm-hmm. where he speaks to the coach about Ramadan and him doing, leading a prayer at the mosque on the following day, the 14th. Right. And, you know, that thing I have to be seen is a very interesting and telling statement. Like he was creating an alibi. Correct. So, so, um, so February 9th, Hayes' body is actually discovered in Leakin Park, I believe I said that correct. correctly. 
correct. Who discovered the body? Uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Alonzo S. But before we before we talk about that, um, after Syed was seen at school, uh, he contacts Jay Wilds. Jay Wilds goes back to pick him up. And the two of them go visiting different friends. And again, the not only the prosecution was able to obtain those cell phone records and figure out when calls were made, and those corroborate Jay Wild's statement and the testimony of other witnesses as far as when calls were made, who they were made to. At about uh-huh. 6 o'clock, Syed, on his new cell phone, receives a call from Hay's family asking if he knows where Hay is. And he tells them, no, talk to her new boyfriend, and that's the end of it. About a half an hour later, he receives a call from Boston, uh, from Baltimore County Police because school is in Baltimore County. And Lincoln Park, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is in Baltimore City. And so it's two different jurisdictions. So Baltimore County started the investigation with the missing persons report. Because the last place she was seen was at school. And so the uh, police, the detective investigating the missing persons, asked Syed a few questions and Syed, you know, says, I don't know where she is and haven't seen her since school let out and that's the end of it. Well, then Syed pretty much freaks out, which is from the testimony not only of Wilde, but from uh, Christy Vincent, who is a friend of Syed's, who Wilde and Syed had gone to visit mm-hmm. and were visiting with at the time the police and, and his family called. So that's when uh, Wilds and Syed leave. They get two shovels at Wilds' house. Mm-hmm. They go back to the parking lot, get Men's car, and after driving around for a little while, they end up in Lincoln Park, and that's where they uh, bury the body. And right. during this time, Wilds paged a friend of his, Jen Pusteri, to let her know he wasn't going to be meeting her at 7 p.m. And she gets the page and the message is garbled. She tries to call. Syed answers the phone because she's calling his cell phone. And he says, Jay's busy right now. He'll call you back and hangs up. Right. And, again, this is not just from what Jay Wilde has said. This is corroborated what he's saying is corroborated by his friend Jen Pusteri. And um, right. so they end up burying the body. At one point, Syed tries to get Wilds to help move Hayes' body from the trunk of her car to the grave. And Wilds says, nope, not touching her. Uh-huh. You're on your own. And Wilds was helping because Syed implied that he would turn him in for drug dealing. Because Wilds was not an innocent baby in the woods. He was the guy, when the students at Woodlawn wanted drugs, he was the guy they went to. 
and he sold drugs. And I think he he bragged about him being more of a a gangster than he really was. Um, but you know, there you have it. But Syed picked him. And I think Syed picked him because he'd be a, an easy person to point a finger at. It just didn't sure. come down to sure. that. So, um, uh, so they bury the body and then they leave. There were two cell phone calls to Syed's phone while they were in Lincoln Park. And there was cell tower location data that those calls were routed through a cell tower that covers the Lincoln Park area. Now, uh-huh. that's going to become a point of controversy later. But okay. uh, it's also interesting that the only time cell phone location data was really used was to place them in Lincoln Park where the body was found. The right. rest of the cell phone records were merely used to corroborate call to or call from uh, Syed's phone to other witnesses. Uh-huh. And to corroborate, and again, all of the, the cell records corroborated Jay's testimony as well as testimony of a lot of all these other witnesses. Uh-huh. And there were a lot of witnesses other than Jay. Okay. Right, absolutely. So. And, you know, Syed had multiple uh, conversations with the police, I believe, and it wasn't long after Syed's body went, or, Excuse me, not Syed. It wasn't long after uh, after Lee's body was found that uh, an anonymous call was placed and kind of implicated Syed, correct? Correct. And Um, um, in in most of those conversations... Do we have any speculation on who that was or do we know who it is now? No, uh, and I don't think that that was ever uh, determined. The description provided by detectives of the voice was that it was an Asian male. Uh-huh. But it, they didn't say whether it was an Asian Pakistani, Asian Indian, Asian Korean, Asian Chinese, Asian Japanese. Um, you know, they, they they said Asian, but not, it sounded like he was Indian. Right. Or it sounded like he was Korean, or it sounded like he was Vietnamese, or it sounded like he was Japanese. Um, so, you know, my own speculation is that it, perhaps could have been someone in Hayes' family. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, you know, I don't know if Asian, if the person had what sounded like an Indian accent, 
or a Pakistani accent. Uh huh. Because contrary to a lot of people's beliefs, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, well, Pakistan definitely is not in the Middle East. It's actually Asia. Right. And uh, Indians are Asian, not Middle Eastern. And, you know, if you're going to be a bigot, at least (laughs) know what you're talking about. Uh, Don't call everyone Middle Eastern just because, you know, they come from a country that's Muslim. Because there are a lot of Muslims in the Philippines. And that's Uh Asian. And there are a lot of Muslims in Indonesia and Malaysia. And they're all Asian. So, you know. But... um, so after they after they dumped the body, they dumped car behind an apartment building in the parking lot, and then they went on their way. Well, on January twenty seventh, I believe, Jennifer uh-huh. Pisa Perry ended up talking to police, but not really telling them anything. And that led police to Jay Wiles. And like Sienna, Jay Wiles spoke to the police many times. And unfortunately, Jay did not choose to be upfront and honest in 100% of his statements to police. He Mm -hmm. didn't tell them certain information because he didn't want to involve his friends. Absolutely. And I I I get the impression that he probably is not what we would call a good historian. So time is somewhat of a fluid concept for him. Uh-huh. So, you know, he could get a call at 2.30 in the afternoon and he'd think it was 3 o'clock. Okay. And, you know, if he thought and if he thought it was three o'clock, he would, you know, he he would insist that it was three o'clock. Um, but he ended up, I think, police, they knew he wasn't ta- telling the whole truth. They knew he was uh, fudging the facts. And so eventually... He did end up telling them the meat of the story. Right. And he also ended up taking them to the apartment complex where Hayes' car was found. Okay. Again, by this time, the body had already been found in Leakin Park. So there was no... Um, there was no taking them to that. But had she not been found yet, perhaps they would have, uh, you know, that would have been another thing. Uh, he, and, they wouldn't have let him take right? Right. So, um, so that was, I mean, Jay Wilds was kind of the cornerstone of their case. 
Well, but, and he's he's listed as an alternate suspect. Do people correct. actually believe that he was the one that killed him and he did it because he was such a good friend or something? What's the well, what's the story on that? The, the it's not really clear with as with um a lot of alternate suspects in this media and internet age often uh-huh. the the accusations against the alternate suspects are more speculative and not supported by evidence. Right. They basically meet all the criteria that advocates claim exonerates the person for whom they're advocating. In Uh Jay Wilde's case, there's apparently... He was involved in a relationship with a girl named Stephanie, who is also a friend of uh, Syed's. And he was cheating on Stephanie with Jen, who's Terry. Uh And this is something that angered Hay because she was also a good friend of Stephanie and she thought that Syed should not be covering for Jay, but should be letting Stephanie know what's really going on. And Syed didn't roll like that. So uh, it was none of his business. He wasn't going to get involved. But Uh he took a lot of heat from Hay as well. And so the theory is that Jen and Jay are the ones who killed Hay buried her body, dumped her car, and then told this fantastic story to frame Syed. Uh-huh. And there are a couple of problems with that. First of all is that based on Syed's statements to Jay, Hay was strangled in her car. Strangling is a very, very, very personal uh, manner of causing the death of another person. Uh Uh-huh. And so uh, there's no indication that Hay was strangled by a ligature. The evidence, the medical examiner, said that it was manual strangulation. So someone with their bare hands literally choked the life out of this poor 18-year-old girl. Right. And um, that it happened in the car. Syed told Jay that uh, Hay broke a turn signal. And mm-hmm. when her car was found, the wiper arm, which is on the passenger side of the steering column, was broken. Okay. And the theory is that Hay was in the passenger seat when she was strangled. Uh-huh. Um, and Jay, I don't think Jay Wilds could have gotten that close to her. I certainly don't think that since she didn't like Jay Wilds, if she saw him on the street bumming a ride, she would have probably... Sh- uh, shot him the bird as she drove past him. 
he was right. about to get in her car. And I don't think Jen would have been getting in her car. Um, from what I can figure out, Jen isn't a student at Woodlawn. I could be mistaken about that. But she's definitely not one of the people in Hayes' circle of friends. Uh-huh. So is a theory for Jay that because Hay was going to tell Stephanie about his affair with Jennifer, he strangled her, and Jennifer helped him. Right. But there's no evidence to, you know, to support any of that. And a lot of the phone calls made while Wilds and Syed were together were made to people that knew Syed and didn't know Wilds. Okay. So, okay. Um, so I know you mentioned Alonzo earlier uh, as far as these three alternative suspects that uh, are listed here. Who is right. Don? I don't believe I've heard you mention Don. Who is Don? Don C. was Hayes' new boyfriend. He was older, hey, and he worked for Lens Crafters. Uh-huh. Um, and they had gotten, they had started a relationship around beginning of January. Okay. She had been with him the night before and left close to midnight, and there was some strife between her and her mother about curfews and phone time and things like that. Um. And I think also it's important, Hay did not have a cell phone. Okay. This was in 1999. Cell phones were not in everyone's hands. I didn't have a cell phone until right. 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hay did not have a cell phone. And... So she had been with him. She was at home writing in her diary when she called, when Syed called with his new cell phone number. And she actually wrote it on the page with Don's name all over it. And so the brother, when he called the number, he thought he was calling Don and then recognized Syed's voice and realized he was calling Syed. So... Um, but he had been, Don had been called to work at a, a different lens crafter store than the one he usually worked in. And he was there from 9 in the morning until probably after 6 o'clock on January 13th. Right. And the police obtained his time records, not only from his regular store, but from this this uh, fill-in store from Lens Crafters Corporate. They issued a subpoena. Lens Crafter provided Lens Crafter provided the time records, and so we have time records that show. On January 13th, Don was at work. Um, Syed's counsel was able to issue 
requests for additional information from lens crafters and actually obtain the, the names and contact information for employees of the lens crafter store where he was working on January 13th. Okay. The theory related to Don's guilt is based on more or less internet detectives looking at that January 13th record and saying it is phony because Don's mother was a manager at one store, either at the Owens Mill store where he filled in or at the store where he worked on a regular basis. So their theory is that to cover up for her son, she and her girlfriend fabricated a time record and sent it to corporate because they didn't get the time records from her or from the girlfriend or from the store where he filled in. They got the time records from Lenscrafters Corporate. And apparently there there have been calls made to Lenscrafter stores where the people who answer the phone have have made statements that lead to the conclusion that the record is fabricated. But there's no uh-huh. official statement from lens crafters that uh-huh. says we've right. examined this and you know this is this is wrong the, the employee number is wrong, the store designation is wrong, the address information is wrong or something and I mean that to me is how you prove that a record is, is not kosher is you get somebody from the company whose record it purports to be to look at it and tell you whether or not it is legitimate or not you don't call you know a, a lens crafter store in your city and say, hey, I'm looking at a time record, and you've got to tell me if it's right or wrong. Right. You know. Um, and unfortunately, there are people who will answer the phone, and they will, you know, do their best to answer your question. Because unfortunately, in this day and age, people don't want to say, I don't know. Or I can't answer that for you. You need to talk to corporate. Right. Um, you know, they'll they'll try and answer your question. And I think there are people out there who are pretty good at framing a question that gets them the answer that they want. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, you know, there's no evidence of Don, you know, a, a palm print from Syed was found in the car. There was no fingerprints or palm prints or anything from Don found in the car. Uh-huh. And, you know, why would Jay Wilde admit to all this if Don was the real killer? I mean, there's no connection between him and Don. And it isn't Don giving information that is inculpatory for Syed, you know, it's somebody else. So there's a 
I think a misunderstanding among lay people that police are required to to exhaustively investigate every single person whose name comes up in an investigation. Uh-huh. And that they have a duty not only to build a case against someone, but to also go to the ends of the earth to find exculpatory information that exonerates a person. And there's also a big mistaken belief that uh, police are supposed to be benefit of the doubt and presume that they're innocent, uh-huh. which is unrealistic because if police presume someone was innocent and then they, they waited only for a class, a certain class of irrefutable evidence in order to form a suspicion about that person, no crime could ever be solved. Right, absolutely. And in an investigation, you know. generally, it's you don't get it all at one time. You get a little piece here and you a little piece there and a little piece somewhere else. And then, you know, when you start putting it, it together then you start to see the big picture that suggests that the person is the person who committed the crime. So let's go ahead, you know, obviously uh, Syed was arrested, and, you know, the evidence becomes quite uh, insurmountable for him, but uh, Syed's family still, for the first trial, hired a defense attorney Christina uh, Gutierrez to represent him. Uh, Gutierrez wasn't well liked by the trial judge, am I correct? There was a problem in the first trial. Um, The judge during a bench conference basically said that Ms. Gutierrez was lying about whether she had seen or reviewed evidence that had been admitted by the prosecution. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he made that comment to her in a voice that carried, and members of the audience heard it, uh, probably a few jurors heard it. Because they submitted uh-huh. a note that said, um, you've determined that she's a liar. Will, you know, will the case, will she be, you know, taken off the case and will we have to start all over again? So right. uh, that was a problem. And uh, that was an example of a, basically, a, a person losing their cool. And it happens to everyone at some time or another. It happens to defense attorneys. It happens to prosecutors. It happens to police investigators. It happens to victims' families. It happens to defendants' families. You lose your cool and you say something that you should not have said. Uh And that is basically what happened. Uh, But You know, I read that part of the transcript, and I could see why the judge lost his cool. 
because he had an attorney who basically did not object or raise any issues about evidence admitted by the prosecutor. It was uh, cell phone records, as I recall. And then later on, she decides that she's never seen it before and that it shouldn't have been admitted and, you know, we need to we need to have a hearing on this and we need a mistrial. So I can see why the judge lost his cool. I mean, you know, not only was it something provided to her in pretrial discovery, but, you know, she had just, an hour before, had reviewed it before it was admitted. Right. Um, It's kind of, I've read the closing and opening statements, and um, I've read some of the the trial transcripts, and I read this little tete-a-tete during the first trial. And, you know, that adage... If the facts are on your side, you argue facts. If the law is uh-huh. on your side, you argue the law. If neither is on your side, on your side, you just argue. Uh huh. And that appears to be what Ms. Gutierrez' strategy was in this trial and the second trial was to just argue. And so a piece of evidence is admitted, 20 minutes later, go back and say, hey, I never saw that before. It doesn't belong. I want it taken out. I want you to strike it. I want this. I want that. I want the other thing. And uh-huh. um, so uh, she was just arguing. And you know, I read I read her opening statement and her closing statement, and I have to say they're the most they were the most disjointed, confusing, and unclear summations and statements that I have ever read in a civil or criminal case in my life. Mm-hmm. Now. Ms. Gutierrez had some health issues even at the time of the trial, as I understand it. She passed away around 2004. Uh-huh. Um, so, unfortunately, she is not here to defend herself against my comments or complaints made by Mr. Syed or the courts. And so, um, but I think she was zealously, I can't say she was zealously representing her client. And she was doing everything that she could to force the state to prove their case. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, like I said, the facts weren't necessarily on her side and the law was not necessarily on her side. 
but she did argue and fight tooth and nail during the entirety of the first and second trial. There were things that she didn't do that perhaps she should have done. Uh, Mr. Syed and his family definitely came away with some complaints about her, but um, that was, yeah, the the first trial ended in a mistrial. Mm-hmm. So it was and declared a before, mistrial based Right. The, uh, yeah, the judge, the judge declared it a mistrial based on the comment and based on the fact that jurors heard the comment, and he also he also recused himself and had okay. the case reassigned to a different judge. Uh, one of the things um, to say is that again, I think the judge lost his cool in that moment. They had been, you know, they had been trying the case for several days by that point. Uh-huh. And there had been probably quite a few testy exchanges between the prosecutor, Ms. Gutierrez, and the judge. Uh-huh. So um, this was not... Uh, and I don't think that you said the judge didn't like her, but I don't think it was necessarily when the trial started that he had some bias against her from the uh-huh. outset. I think that it was over the course of the days that she basically worked on a nerve. Right. And right. It culminated in him, like I said, losing his school. Yes, it's unprofessional. Yes, a judge shouldn't do it. But they're human beings. And he apologized to her on the record. He did declare a mistrial. He did remove himself from the case. So he did all of the right things on his own motion. She didn't have to file a motion to recuse. She didn't have to file a motion for a mistrial. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to argue those and prove those. She was he he did it on his own motion. I'm going to declare a mistrial. I'm going to, you know, I'm removing myself. I'll have this case reassigned. So, okay. again, he he made a mistake, but he did Everything to remedy that mistake. Absolutely. And to ensure that Mr. Syed got a fair trial. And I would agree. And, you know, that's definitely a very commendable thing for that judge to have done. Uh, You know, this all leads into a second trial, which you mentioned, you know, the, the original trial judge recused himself and, um, Ms. Gutierrez, I believe, stayed on during the second trial. So uh, we're right about halftime. We're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to go ahead and talk about the second trial of uh, Mr. Syed. Uh, You're listening to the Clear and Convincing Podcast, and we'll be right back right after this. 
children of the stars In the Hollywood Hills and the Boulevard Her parents threw big parties Everyone was there They hung out with folks like Dennis Hopper And Bob Seger and Sonny and Cher Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. We sure are. We are back and uh, ready to discuss the second trial that, you know, I was shocked how short it was, you know, but when the evidence is there, I guess it doesn't really take a long time to get a conviction. No, uh, the, the, the second trial actually lasted about six weeks. So right. that is that is long. Oh really? Okay. See, I yeah, yeah. I you know, you're thinking about the deliberation of the jury. Okay. <laughs> Which was short. Mhm. So, but yeah, it lasted six weeks. And something I want to add, Miss um, Gutierrez was retained counsel. She was not a public defender. Uh. His family and his community uh, basically, you know, got together and raised the money to hire a private attorney to hire investigators to provide him with a defense in this case. And I think that's something important to to, uh, mention because a lot of people – on message boards and 
pages seem to believe, oh, this is, you know, a, a public defender, and if he had Johnny Cochran, he would have been acquitted. He probably would have been acquitted with Johnny Cochran. But uh-huh. Johnny Cochran was a licensed practice in Maryland. So uh, there's that. And she was a, a well-respected and, and very uh, uh, zealous attorney, zealous criminal defense attorney in Baltimore right. or Baltimore, Maryland. Uh-huh. My family's from up in that area, and I'm I'm not quite clear on the Baltimore City, Baltimore County, <laughs> whole thing. I, I mean, I guess one was maybe outside of the city limits. That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, probably so. Um, they didn't use a lot of city names when they referred to, uh, but Baltimore is is pretty huge, as I recall. Uh-huh. So, uh, and the only thing I really remember is from watching Homicide Life on the Streets way back in the 90s when you were just a little baby. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, the yeah, second trial lasted six weeks, and uh, the state presented their case. Uh, which included cell tower location information um, and that was their expert was an engineer with a t and t which was the provider for cell phones and uh, he testified that you know those two calls that were received at i believe it was seven o nine and seven sixteen they went through a tower that covered the Lincoln Park area and mm-hmm. that the cell phone at the time those calls came in was probably possibly likely in the Lincoln Park area at the time the body was buried. So again, okay. it corroborated Jay Wilde's testimony. Mm-hmm. And one of the other suspects we didn't look at uh, was Alonzo, who he's the man who found the body. And he had kind of a squirrely story about why he was in Lincoln Park. Uh, He was employed at a university. He needed a tool that the university didn't have a planer. And so he apparently had a planer at his house, so he left work to go home and get the planer and while he was there he had a beer and then on his way back to the university he apparently had to answer the call of nature and pulled off and went into Lincoln Park and went back I think the the burial site was 15 feet from the road um and saw a foot. And then he didn't immediately call police. He apparently went home and tried to decide what to do and finally called police and met them back at the location where the body was found. And the body was disinterred by 
um, military personnel who works with the uh, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. So that was an issue, and I, I believe that they had an anthropologist who they consulted as far as uh, when the you know when a an approximate time of death or uh, post mortem interval was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also uh, something that isn't mentioned by a lot of Syed's advocates is that when the body was found, there was indications that animals had been trying to get to it. Because it was in in a shallow grave and covered by some rocks. Yeah, she was only partially covered. Correct. And and so that, and there was, there were indications that were, she was wearing pantyhose that were torn and and shredded and that was an indication that animals had been trying to get at the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also could be a reason that when the body was found, it was not face down as described by Jay Wilde but was on her, on her right side. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but that's and that, that's another theory we'll get to a little bit later. So what exactly uh, what exactly was Mr. Syed convicted of, and what was the sentence on the outcome of the second trial? He was convicted of robbery, kidnapping, first degree murder, mm-hmm. um, and. He was sentenced to life in prison on the murder, 30 years on the kidnapping, I believe, mm-hmm. and another 10 years. The the 30-year sentence was to run consecutive to the life sentence, mm-hmm. and then a 10-year concurrent sentence uh, was imposed on one of the other charges, which means that 10 years would run concurrent with life sentence. So I'm going to need you to go ahead and explain to me the robbery conviction. Okay. Well, the robbery was, uh, the robbery was based on Syed taking the car. Mm-hmm. And there was also uh, indications that he took belongings of Hayes and disposed of them in a dumpster after dumping the car uh-huh. and the body. So that was the robbery. Okay. Uh, the kidnapping was, was removing her from, you know, the high school under false pretenses to the Best Buy parking lot where he killed her. Uh-huh. And so... The uh, murder was life, 30 years for kidnapping, 10 years for the robbery to run concurrent with the 30-year sentence for kidnapping. Okay. Okay. And after he was convicted, uh, 
he requested that Ms. Gutierrez be removed, and he had new counsel for sentencing. Okay. And obviously they didn't do much of a better job. <laughs> um, no, the sentencing was uh, the the sentencing hearing was postponed. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, the the sentencing hearing. I don't think that the uh, I don't think that there was a lot to do that the sentencing attorney could have done um, uh-huh. because. I think pretty much first degree murder. He had already, he had always faced a life sentence for first okay. degree murder. Uh, okay. I, I think he probably wasn't facing the death penalty because of his age. Right. So, uh, but had he been a year older, he probably would have been facing the death penalty. Okay. Okay, that makes so, sense. You know, they don't they don't do too many uh, cases where you know young people are sentenced to death or it's even an option as far as that goes. You know, people either right over the legal age or just under the legal age they don't usually uh, go for any go for the capital punishment. In my uh, right. that I Meryl even. Even though Maryland had capital punishment at the time, um, I don't think that they did seek it as often as a state like Texas. Okay. Or Florida or, um, yeah, I, I think that the circumstances for the, and, you know, whether or not to seek uh, death penalty is a a prosecutor's discretion, and it's on a case right. by case basis. And you know, I think that when they looked at this because of his age, they probably decided that they weren't going to seek it. Okay. Um, okay. And had they started and gotten it, it probably would have been. Uh, commuted anyway in what was it 2006 based Mm -hmm. on the Supreme Court decision but I don't think he was a juvenile I think he was uh, I think he was over the age of 18 at the time because Heyman Lee was over 18 Mm -hmm. right right she was Close to 19, I believe. If not, she may have been 19 when she uh, was murdered. What took two years for him to actually uh, file for his direct appeal? Why did it take two years for that to happen? Um, Well, I don't think – I think that probably he filed for it within – uh, he probably filed for it within 120 days. It's just the briefing uh-huh. process and getting transcripts and things of that nature can take because his his direct appeal was decided in 2003. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, 
again, it, it, it's probably an administrative, um, it's probably an administrative function as far as you can't have the appeal. Neither side mm-hmm. can prepare a brief until they have the trial transcript and mm-hmm. all of the exhibits. And that has to be prepared at the trial court and sent to the appellate court. And then the appellate court, the parties get the record from the appellate court. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so he was, he had a motion to modify he, sentence that was denied on August 2nd, and he probably filed his, uh, August 2nd, 2000, he probably filed his motion to appeal or notice of appeal within 30 days of that. So that would have been around mm-hmm. September of uh, 2000. Okay. So it, it was denied, though. Ultimately, it was unsuccessful, correct? Correct. So uh, was there any reason why it was denied specifically? Like, is there any big story um, that came out of that? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Uh, basically, um, they, the appellate court, oh wait, I'm looking at the post-conviction, um, we're not there yet. Uh, no, basically they found that, uh, the issues that appealed were, uh, allegations that the prosecutor suppressed an oral side agreement with Jay Wiles and introduced false and misleading evidence that Syed was prohibited from presenting evidence to the jury that admission of a letter from the victim to Syed was prejudicial, that the admission of the victim's diary was also irrelevant and prejudicial hearsay. Um, They found Mm -hmm. that Syed's attorney spent five days cross-examining Jay Wilds. She brought out information about the lies that he told in his prior statements to police, the manner in which he became, he came to be represented by an attorney in connection with his plea agreement for accessory after the fact. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note that he was actually an accessory before the fact because when Syed left him the car and the cell phone, Syed also told him that he was going to kill Heyman Lee. Right. Um, and basically, uh, Wilds went to meet with the prosecutor. The prosecutor introduced him to an attorney. The attorney agreed to represent him. He agreed to be represented by that attorney. It seems a little unusual, however... It also appears that, as with Syed, Wilds was potentially uh, going to be charged with a crime. Right. And before he talked to before he talked to prosecutors, the prosecutors wanted to make sure that his rights were being protected, and so right. helped him get an attorney who he chose, who chose him. Interestingly, Wilde said that he had been contacting the public defender's office 
which told him, we can't represent you until you are actually charged. Mm-hmm. So the jury was aware of all these things, the plea agreement and the plea hearing, and Gutierrez uh, pointed to some irregularities, for example, at the time uh, Wilds testified, he actually had not been, he had not entered a plea. He had not been sentenced. Uh-huh. Uh, part of the reason for that was that that plea agreement was contingent upon his testimony at Syed's trial. And his understanding okay. was if he didn't tell the truth in his testimony, that deal would go away. And he would right. be facing charges without the deal and without any benefit. A much harder so, right. And, and again, all the, all the false statements that he made when he was interviewed, that was all brought to the jury's attention. Like I said, she spent five days cross-examining him. However, she also wanted to call the prosecutor. She wanted to call the attorney. She wanted to call a public defender to, you know, testify about the irregularity of how Wiles came to be represented an attorney. And basically the Court of Special Appeals in Maryland found that that none of that was necessary or relevant, mm-hmm. um, that the prosecutor and the attorney, all of their testimony would be cumulative of Wiles' testimony. And the public defender, the testimony from that person would not be uh, helpful because that public defender witness had no firsthand knowledge of the case. Right. And so they found that there was no Brady violation uh, by the prosecutor that the the information, the defense received the information and used it during their five days of cross-examination of Jay Wilde. Okay. Okay. So, so he, after this failure, he applied for post-conviction relief in 2010, right? Correct. So and that his, one, mm-hmm. I thought that that his, one was a long time because in most right. states, you only have a year or at most three years after your conviction and sentence become final, which uh, Syed's conviction and sentence became final when uh, the Maryland Court of Appeals, which I guess is their high court, their highest court, denied review Uh in 2003. Um, Okay. And it doesn't look like he, he. It doesn't look like anybody applied for certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is unusual. Okay. Um, but yeah. it, it doesn't appear to have happened. Um, but in Maryland, you have ten years to file a post-conviction claim. Mm-hmm. Which is okay. just amazing to me. 
Um, quite, quite a while. <laughs> now, is it 10 like, years I'd, from the direct appeal or 10 years from his original sentence? It would be 10 years from the date that his uh, appeal to the Maryland Court of Appeal was denied. Because technically okay. that would be the date on which his sent- conviction and sentence became final. Okay. Okay. So, obviously he was also unsuccessful in that, raising uh, issues with ineffective counsel stemming to Miss Gutierrez uh, and, uh, you know, Next up, shockingly enough, we're going to be a podcast talking about podcasts. But uh, what's the deal with the Serial Undisclosed podcast? Uh, I believe from October 3rd to December 18th of 2014, uh, Heyman Lee and uh, Syed were the subject of Serial, hosted by Sarah Koning. Yes. And, um, you know, that was the, quote, reinvestigation, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first. There have been multiple uh, podcasts. Serial and Undisclosed are the two, I think, that have gotten the most attention. Um, But uh, there have been multiple podcasts. And that particular aspect is kind of driven by a woman by the name of Rabia Chaudhry. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name. Um, she's the one who brought the case to Sarah Koenig mm-hmm. and provided information and access to a lot of the parties uh, for serial. And she's also working with the uh, woman who runs a website in connection with Undisclosed, which was the second podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And her name, I think, is Sim- her last name is Sims or Simmons. Uh, they've done interviews on MSNBC. They've appeared on multiple true crime type shows, uh, investigation shows, you know, I'm sure 48 hours, Dateline, it'll all be, you know, they'll all be covering it. There's going to be an HBO special. um, Mm -hmm. And that is all well and good. However, I take issue with some of the representations just on the few few interviews that I've seen. Right. Um, I saw one interesting uh, accusation saying that Jay Wilde didn't know what he was talking about until a tapping sound was heard. So are they saying that he was giving cues during his his testimony or what are they saying? Well, I I think they're talking about his interviews with police. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are there are accusations that um, Jay 
was fed information by police that the police actually found the car and then provided that information to Jay so that he could, quote, lead them to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the things that I find so totally speculative that I don't really I don't really find them to be reliable to me to form an opinion. Mm-hmm. And right, uh, a lot of times they're they're so totally speculative and they don't do anything to diminish some of the other things that we know, like why would he give Jay Wilds the car and the cell phone? Mm-hmm. Now, they portray it as though Jay, it wasn't Syed's idea to give Jay Wilds the cell phone in the car. It was Jay's idea to get the car and the cell phone from Syed. Mm-hmm. And that in and um, of itself completely speculative and unfounded. Right, but, you know, that's, it's, it's, and it's semantics. It's his car. If Jay Wilds says, can I use your car, he says, hell no. You can't right. use my car. <laughs> Go pound sand, because that's a common, yeah. you know, insult up there, or at least it is in Philly. Um, hmm. But you know, it, it doesn't matter whether it was Syed's idea or Jay Wall's idea. The bottom line is, for some reason, for that afternoon prior between lunch and school getting out, Jay Wilds had Adnan Syed's car, and cell phone. Mm-hmm. And any way you slice it, it still doesn't, you know, it doesn't provide a reasonable explanation of why Syed would let him have the car and the cell phone. So, but yeah, and there, there's another, uh, another interesting thing I was watching, a, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was from MSNBC, and it was called The Science of Serial. And there's a segment on the autopsy. And at one point, Miss Sims or Simmons says there was no autopsy report. That uh-huh. the medical examiner and the anthropologist gave verbal findings to the police who then made notes about them. And when I heard that, I immediately searched Heyman Lee autopsy report. And on her site, there's the autopsy report. And it is a, an autopsy report like many others I have seen and read. It details an external examination. It details an internal examination. It details the findings that were made. It details the uh, injuries that were found. It details the... Uh, the opinion as to cause and manner of death, there's nothing unusual about it, and it's not notes from a detective, Uh but an autopsy report signed by the medical examiner who performed the autopsy. Uh, Now, she is correct that the anthropologist did not generate a report. That is somewhat unusual to me in a case like this. However, what a lot of people 
she purports to be an attorney, so she should know this, but accident reports, incident reports, police reports, autopsy reports, uh, crime scene reports, evidence examination reports, they are all hearsay. They are not in and of themselves admissible in trial. Uh What is admissible is the testimony of the officer who investigated the crime scene, the technician who gathered the evidence and tested the evidence, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy, the anthropologist who examined photographs or the autopsy report or the victim in sight at the burial site and formed opinions regarding uh, how long the, the body had been there, what had you know taken place while the body was there, it was there animal activity, et cetera, et cetera. That is what is admissible in trial. Having those reports within the police record, of course, are helpful to people like us who want to look at those source documents. Mm-hmm. But again... You know, I I don't know in in Maryland. I don't want know what their pretrial discovery rules are. Right. But if there was no report from the anthropologist, I'm I'm sure that prior to him testifying, Miss Gutierrez had an opportunity to uh, interview him. And there's also the fact that Miss Gutierrez could have gone out and hired a medical examiner her own anthropologist, her own crime scene people. She could have requested that anything that wasn't tested be tested. She Uh could have requested, hired her own experts, crime scene experts, and, you know, trace analysts, hair analysts, DNA analysts, uh, to have access to the evidence, to observe testing of the evidence, and or to obtain samples from the evidence to uh-huh. do their own testing. So, you know, a lot of the complaints that are being made about this case, she likely didn't do any any of those things because there was so little evidence. It was all circumstantial. You're almost smarter to poke holes in the cir- each circumstance that you can, rather than going out and obtaining test results that might end up inculpating your client. Right. Um, so, again, but like I said, I kind of lost all credibility for that particular show because on national television they're making a representation that is not true and is disproven by their own their own website that uh-huh. has an autopsy report. And while, you know, she may have just been mistaken when she said there was no autopsy report, maybe she meant to say there was only no report from the uh from the anthropologist. But again, It's national TV, and it's an audience who doesn't know Adnan Syed from Adam. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And what you so, find is people accept these things, and they don't, you know, they don't look for themselves. Mm-hmm. They just believe it, and then it goes around the internet, and it becomes fact. Right. And then when someone says, "Oh no, that's not true," I mean, I could probably go on any any discussion of Adnan Syed, and when I see somebody that says they never did an autopsy report, I could post a link to the autopsy report, and I'd be accused of lying, accused of being the prosecutor. Uh huh. I would be accused of being, you know, uh, Ka- uh, Kathleen Murphy. I think was the name of one of the prosecutors. Um or one of the police officers, or detectives, or a wife of one of the detectives. I mean, because I've had it on Rodney Reed and West Memphis Street. Right. If I believe that they're guilty, I have to be a prosecutor involved in the case, or I have to be a family member of one of the police officers because only one of those people would believe that they're guilty. Well, you know, Lisa, it looks and it appears like after the or the excuse me the first state post conviction, it seems like from 2015 to today, Adnan's kind of gone on a winning streak here. You know, all the way up to he's actually now awaiting a new trial. Am I correct on that? Well, yes, you're you're mostly correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he filed for leave to appeal to the Court of Special Appeals in uh, in Maryland after the right. first post conviction uh, was denied. Right. And when he filed for his leave to appeal, he included an affidavit from a woman by the name of Asia McLean. Uh-huh. And he had raised issues regarding uh, his attorney's failure to contact or call Asia McLean as an alibi witness in the first post-conviction case. Okay. But it was not successful. And so the, the Court of Special Appeals remanded the post-conviction claim back to the trial court to reopen so that this new evidence could be looked at. Um, Now, one of the interesting things about Asia McLean is that in the records from Ms. Gutierrez, Asia McLean's Uh name appears on a note within those records. Asia McLean had written two letters to Adnan Syed shortly after his arrest. Right. In the first post-conviction, the judge found that those letters really did not provide a solid alibi for Syed. Um, She doesn't mention a time that she saw him in the library. She uh, also... Her claim of seeing him in the library actually contradicted his statements about his movements on that day, which were 
uh, he did a very smart thing is when he did talk to police, he was as vague as possible and claimed not to be able to remember anything that went on that day. Right. Um, So he didn't give them anything to refute, but he didn't give them a lot of information that they could also corroborate. He had told the attorney about Miss McLean, but the attorney did not contact her, did not call her as a witness, did not appear within the file to have even investigated her. Um, fast forward three years, and the same judge who initially found the letters not to be that great decided that they actually were uh-huh. great. And so um, the judge kind of reversed himself. He found that failing to contact McLean was um, uh-huh. deficient, but that that did not uh, actually prejudice Syed. So he won on one round, but not the second ground, because on ineffective assistance, you not only have to prove that your attorney made a mistake, you have to prove that that mistake had a uh, a negative impact on your defense and that had the mistake not been made, had the witness been called to testify, the outcome of your trial would have been different. Mm-hmm. So um, that that one kind of boggled my mind. Right. How can you because, say, you know, Right, and there are a couple of troubling things about Miss McLean to me. First of all, in 1999, she's writing to Adnan Syed after he's arrested and saying she wants to help him, saying she believes he's innocent. Yet she didn't reach out to police in Baltimore right, to give them a statement that it couldn't have been Adnan because I saw him in the library. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some semantic gymnastics about whether or not his presence in the library was on or off campus. And okay. again, it, it's kind of a slick presentation of media and advocates who help shape what gets presented to court. And in this case, uh, one of the things that was uh, in the direct appeal as well as the first post-conviction was Asia McClain's statement about seeing him in the library contradicted his statement about him staying on campus until track practice. But now the library, even though it wasn't the school library, it was the Woodlawn Public Library, it was considered to be on campus, quote, on campus, unquote. Um, now, interestingly, the that fact is proven by students who say, yeah, it was on campus. It was so close, we considered it on campus. Very interesting. 
I wonder, however, if anyone from Woodlawn's school administration would consider it on campus. In other words, mm-hmm. if during fourth period you have a study hall and you are observed by someone in administration or a teacher going off campus or going across the campus to the Woodlawn Library, would they say, okay, they're on campus, we're not going to do anything? Or would they say, they're leaving campus, let's go page them and catch them skipping class? Mm-hmm. Because when I was in high school, we had an open campus, and you know we considered the Burger King and Blimpies and Winn-Dixie to be part of our campus because we were right. able to go there for lunch and things like that. Although Winn-Dixie would not let us go in between 8.30 and 3.30. And there were a few times where Winn-Dixie would not let us in their store at all. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, when my friend and I snuck off from study hall early to go grab lunch at Burger King, we got busted. Mm-hmm. for right. skipping class and being off campus. Of course, then we just got smart and we just went to Uptown Square <laughs> mm. instead of going to Burger King where we could be seen. But right. um, So that, you know, that's interesting. Uh, but at the time, in 1999, because the appellate court frames it in that way, I would say that the Woodlawn Public Library was not considered to be on Woodlawn High School's campus. Right. Syed's defense never presented it as part of Woodlawn's campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so in another way, they're framing this with quote new information that could have and should have been presented years ago. It should have been presented at his trial. Right, absolutely. You know, uh, Asia McLean, and she also she was waiting around for the defense attorney to contact her. She wasn't. I would have been if I were in her shoes. I would have been aggressively calling her every week when the trial started. I would be in that courtroom, and the first break in the trial, I would have gone up to her and said, I need to talk to you. I'm an alibi witness. I would not just sit back and wait for somebody to call me. And then another interesting thing is that in 2010, in, in March of 2000, Syed's family was able to get an affidavit from McLean, which was filed with a motion for new trial. Mm-hmm. But in 2010, when his post-conviction claim, the first claim, was filed, she apparently, even though they had been trying to get in touch with her, she did not return their calls, and she would not get involved, and she contacted one of the prosecutors to find out what was going on. And while there's dispute as to what she told the prosecutor and what the prosecutor told her, it still seems 
really odd to me that if she was a legitimate witness, when his defense is trying to get in touch with you in 2010, why are you calling the prosecutor? Mm-hmm. Does not make sense. Right. I completely agree with that. And, um, you know, she is the alibi witness that can totally sink the state's timeline, mm-hmm. which is based more on the phone records than it is on Jay Wilde. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the major portions of it, of Jay Wilde's testimony, are corroborated 100% not only by phone records, but by testimony from other witnesses. You know, a friend of Syed's who he called and put on the phone with Jay, she says, yeah, I got a call, and he put me on the phone with Jay. Of course, now she's saying, well, that could have been at any time between the time I met him and, you know, January 13th. So, you know, now I don't really remember if it was the 13th. But that's what you testified to at trial. That was what you stated sure. in your statements to police. Um, so, and, and I think a lot of pressure is ultimately put on witnesses who then second-guess their testimony and their statements, and, you know, they second-guess what it meant. Mm -hmm. And so then they're willing to, well, you know, if I testified to that, I was probably wrong. Or my other favorite is the prosecutor forced me to testify that way. Right. That hasn't happened yet in this case, but I I don't think it's far behind. I think we're going to start seeing other witnesses coming forward and saying, the prosecutor made me say these things. The prosecutor provided me with that information. Even though if and when they testify, there are probably going to be statements to police before police even had cell phone records that you know, have the have those statements in it. So, um, I think, and and unfortunately, the the general public is going to believe it. Mm-hmm. Why would they lie? They have no reason to lie. You know. They had no reason to lie during the trial either, but that's what you're accusing them of having done. Very true. I would definitely, I would definitely agree with that. So, Lisa, we're kind of wrapping up here with uh, Mr. Syed. Obviously, we know coming up in November, December. He's got a new trial coming up, and, you know, I'm sure we're going to keep him Actually, updated. Actually, no. On that. No, is that's not? not correct. No, it is not correct. Bless you, little heart. Okay. Okay, we keep – I know. I told you this should have been a two-parter. Um, so the original trial judge granted his second uh, 
post-conviction quest for a new trial. As to the reliability of cell tower location evidence. Because Ms. Gutierrez did not um, uh, did not challenge that evidence and there was a cover sheet from AT&T that said incoming calls are not considered reliable for location. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem I have with that is that the legal department are lawyers. Lawyers. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I sound like a New Orleanian. Um, <laughs> the prosecutor is a lawyer. They're not competent to determine the reliability of an engineering system as complicated as cell phone towers mm-hmm. and call switching and how those friggin' things work. An engineer, however, is competent and capable of determining those things. So essentially okay. the prosecutor was accused of a Brady violation for not providing a cover page that warned against using incoming calls to track location of a cell phone based on partially on the engineer who testified for the state saying, oh, yeah, the prosecutor never showed me that page. If he showed me that page, I would have questioned using the cell tower to locate that cell phone for incoming calls or something along those mm-hmm. lines. And, you know, I want to I talk to that engineer and say, well, you're an engineer. Presumably an engineer would be the person who told the legal department that we need to put a disclaimer on these cover sheets because there are issues with with incoming calls and how they're routed and how they communicate with towers, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. And um, mm-hmm. so I would expect an engineer to know that, not to have to rely right. on his legal department's uh, Disclaimer on a fax cover sheet from AT&T. Um, but right, apparently that 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 judge Welch did not really look at it from that aspect, and he probably wasn't presented with it in that way. Um, mm-hmm. But he was presented with the engineer's affidavit, and he took that at face value, and so he found that it was deficient of her not to challenge the reliability and it was prejudicial to Syed. So based on that, he ordered a uh, new trial and vacated the conviction. Right. The state of Maryland appealed to the Court of Special Appeals. The Court of mm-hmm. Special Appeals affirmed the grant of a new trial but mm-hmm. not on the cell phone tower issue. Apparently, they affirmed the grant of a new trial on the Asia McLean issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I ran out of time doing my research, and so I hadn't oh. finished reading the 72-page um, or the 70-something page Court of Special Appeals opinion or the dissent filed by mm-hmm. the judge who 
did not agree with his brethren on the Court of Special Appeals. The state of Maryland um, filed a leave to appeal with the Maryland Court of Appeal, which, as I understand it, is their state Supreme Court. It's just not called Mm -hmm. a Supreme Court. It's called Court of Appeal. And Mm -hmm. that appeal was granted. There's a cross appeal by Syed. The Mm -hmm. uh, state of Maryland has filed its brief. Adnan Syed's brief is due on August 20th. And so the grant of a new trial is on hold for at least a year possibly 18 months, depending on whether Syed's brief is filed on time, whether the state files a reply, and what uh, time frame the Court of Appeal orders for oral argument, additional briefing, uh, whether they are going to want to remand it to the uh, state trial court to gather additional evidence because what happened with the Court of Special Appeals on the first uh, post-conviction writ was they really didn't have enough information. Uh, Syed submitted new information when he filed his leave to appeal, and so they didn't make any decision and remanded it all back to the trial court for further evidence. And right. so we'll have to see if that is what happens in this um, in this okay. phase of the claim. Right, right. And it's possible uh, to me, based on my experience, the Court of Appeal would not grant leave to hear either side's issues with the trial court or court of special appeals if there wasn't something there. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that it is entirely possible that the court of appeal could completely reverse everything. Right, right. And well, if they so. don't, it's also entirely possible that the U.S. Supreme Court could step in and completely reverse everything because they did that in another Baltimore case. Okay. A couple of years ago. So we we okay. shall have to see. Still a lot of battles left to be fought in this thing, huh? Correct. There is. There is. And, um, uh, you know, I, I have an, an interesting quote. I want to read real quick from the trial judge uh, on the second opinion that he issued where he reversed himself on Asia McLean and found deficiency where he didn't, even though he didn't find prejudice. He said this case represents a unique juncture between the criminal justice system and a phenomenally strong public interest created by modern media. Throughout the proceedings, the parties made repeated efforts to direct the court's attention to the Serial Podcast, a 12-part episodic internet audio program that explored the substantive 
and procedural issues of this case from trial through the present post-conviction proceedings. The serial has attracted millions of active listeners worldwide and inspired many through social media to support and advocate for petitioner's request for post-conviction relief. Uh-huh. The court did not consult serial. But that is, you know, that's where we stand. And that's where we've been moving since Paradise Lost. You're absolutely right. So, but, uh, I think maybe we'll probably, we'll definitely have to do another, another look at this one. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I've, I've got another ream. <laughs> I've got another ream of, uh, briefs that I haven't even read yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah, definitely. It'll be interesting to see what happens going forward as well. So definitely an update show on uh, Mr. Saya. It'll be needed. But let's go ahead real quick. We are in overtime. Let's go ahead and uh, talk about what we're going to talk about next week and go ahead and get out of here. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week for Episode 21, State of Oklahoma versus Wanda Jean Allen. Allen's 2001 execution for the murder of Gloria Jean Leathers sparked controversy due to allegations that Allen had a low IQ and had, had sustained brain damage as a teenager. Join Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan on Tuesday, September 11th, 2018 at 8 p.m. Central for a discussion of the case against Allen, her trial and appeals, and the challenges to her sentence, including her request for clemency from the governor of Oklahoma. Until then, have a safe week. If you're in Gordon's path, hunker down and stay safe. We'll see you next week.